0: Apparently, we lose 22
1: veterans a day. Oh, God, suicide. it's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's sad. It's, it's just sad because it doesn't have to be that way. But you have to reach out. The VA or the therapist or whatever is not going to come to you. They're not going to come to you. You need to go to them and you need to open up and you need to be honest. I'm
0: Greg Running. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome to our podcast. And I will add, welcome to
2: our weekly podcast. Podcast. Yes, we're now weekly. <laughs> more, more production for us.
0: Oh joy! <laughs> more pressure for us. Oh joy! Yeah, yeah
2: more pressure. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm actually uh, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hearing back that our podcast is actually helping people. So that's awesome. So, that's the whole idea, right? Well, it is. Otherwise, why would we be doing it? So keep on sending in your cards and letters. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's that's definitely a radio term oh, i yeah. know yeah, yeah way
2: back when yeah but uh, way back when anyway uh, today i am i am really looking forward to this talk for many people who don't know we do pre interviews before we actually do the interview with our guests you know just uh, you know shake the tree and uh, and see what falls I've had the pleasure of talking to our, our guest, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. well, before the passing of my son, and uh, I'm this guy is a great storyteller. Oh, he is, yeah. And yeah. Uh, he's got quite the story to tell, and today uh, it deals with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So, yeah, this
0: podcast, um, as we talked about with Steve, we wanted to give listeners an insight what it's like to be a, a soldier during war what it's like to be trained to kill or be killed when we talked about it years ago it was very open so a lot of this is kind of i i remember from his conversations mm-hmm. but a, a number of questions i've had since then because i've been working i've been working as a therapist the whole idea is to provide people some insight not not only into um what it's like to be a soldier during vietnam but also the after effects of war the after effects of any trauma mm-hmm. but uh your dad for example he was in uh, world war II. yeah my grandfather was in world war II.
2: yeah my dad was with the uh, rcaf and he flew ferry command and you know that that was uh my growing up was hearing all the stories about war so um and s- some of those stories were deep as i'm sure today yeah. today's uh, story from steve will be yeah,
0: and my stories from my grandfather too. I, I think that probably both of them had a certain amount of post-traumatic stress from the war. Yeah. Well, a veteran of two tours of Vietnam. Here's Steve Cox, our special guest today on Mind Body Matters.
1: I love you, that you named your podcast that. Oh, a lot of people don't really see the correlation you know, between the mind and the body.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's kind of like my first, one of my first questions. When was the last time that, that I saw you in the States? I used to come down regularly to Indiana. 25 years ago, maybe. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while.
1: Do I look older? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You look older, I look
0: younger. (laughs) You do. You look good. I'm going to lie a lot here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, <laughs> uh, you're
0: looking good. Uh, I really appreciate that you, you know, you set aside the time to to talk to us about Vietnam and your experiences and that uh, hopefully our discussion helps people understand PTSD a little bit more. That's what we're after. Exactly. Yeah. And for people to reach out and ask for help. Absolutely. Yeah. The first question I'll ask is kind of what you're mentioning before about the mind and body. And you probably heard this in other episodes I know you've listened to a few of them. What do you think is the connection between mind and body?
1: Sometimes uh, I notice I react on what I think instantly, uh, which is one of my downfalls. I don't stop to think things over. If it hits up here, then it's then I have a tendency of, like anger, for instance. If somebody says uh, something that I dislike, and I only take two seconds to mull it over, and then the body. Reacts. (laughs) Reacts. <laughs> Does that make sense? I, I don't know if that makes sense. It
0: makes perfect sense.
1: uh Tailgater. I hate tailgaters driving behind me. I see them. My mind says, "I don't like you. I don't like what you're doing." So I'm going to react. My body reacts. I hit my brakes. Louise gets mad. She says, "Don't do that. There's road there's people out there that, that will kill you for doing that." And the old me says, "I don't care." You know. <laughs> Some of business get off my ass, (laughs) and the old me comes out. See, Uh, and that's That was the way I used to think after uh, during my drinking days and after the war. I don't care.
0: So there's your mind body correlation. Absolutely, that's a great example. Boy, it's it's going back. It was in my first year of recovery that I came down, and I was just I was so surprised um, that. I would I would meet someone from the States in AA and they would say, you know what, you should come down to the States sometime because you know how people say that, you know. You're welcome to come down and, and see us, but it never really kind of transpires. But I felt a, a real need to go down and see what you guys were talking about with AA down there. We had obviously the AA meetings up here, but I sensed the community. I, I sensed something in you. Uh, specifically, and I met your wife, Louise, that I, I, I think I'm comfortable with these guys. I'm going to take them up on their offer and, and drive down to uh, to Indiana. And that was, you were living in Indiana at that time. Now you're living in Gulf Shores, Alabama. In Alabama, yes, sir. Right. How yeah. did you get to Alabama from Indiana? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: I was I retired, obviously, and uh, I got tired of the cold up north. And one day, uh, my wife went to, uh, Al-Anon meeting and I got, I'm a, I'm a computer nerd. So I Googled some uh, Southern States and, and I found, uh, Alabama and, uh, she came home that night and I said, well, pack up your clothes. We're you? <laughs> and that's just kind of the way it was. Yeah. We came down, had no idea what we were getting into. Uh, we had a, we had a, uh, a trailer that we pulled behind the car. We eventually moved up to a truck and a fifth wheel, but we had a small trailer and a small car. So here we come down to Alabama and well, my younger brother used to come here uh, yearly on as a snowbird. And he talked about it a lot. So I thought I'd try it out. And and we ended up uh, selling our home in Indiana and moving down.
0: I've seen the pictures. And um, (laughs) as you said, you're a computer nerd. You, you're the only person I know that has a, has their own drone, and you, <laughs> you've taken some amazing videos in the last little while that you put on Facebook. Well, thank you. I mean, it's a beautiful area where you are. Um, it is. I'm glad that you and Louise have found your place, and you're retired, enjoying yourself down there. I see all the nice dinners that you guys are going to. Uh, you seem to take <laughs> a picture of, of your dinners quite a bit and, and share them. what
1: we're... As you Canadians say, it's what we're about, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I remember being razzed quite a bit about the Canadian accent. and I, I, I still don't hear it, but apparently it's there. But one thing I do know is that we say A a lot. Yes,
1: you do. Well, I got razzed when I moved down here. They tell me I still don't know how to say y'all, right?
0: How do you, how do you say it in Indiana, and how do they say it down in, in Alabama?
1: Well, they say y'all, and we say you all. For all of you. Right. All of you, yes. But I am learning how to say I'm fixing to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good Southern term there. <laughs> that's what I was fixing to do.
0: Yeah. Uh, I just really enjoyed the time in, in Indiana. Thinking back, and I shared this when we were talking a few weeks ago, that I didn't know very much about the Vietnam War. I didn't know very much about POW, MIA. You know, I was born in 65, so I was born in the middle of the uh, Vietnam conflict. Also being Canadian, you know, we have a different perspective on the war. But uh, I remember the banner you used to have up on the wall, and you probably still have it up on the wall. The black banner, and it says, P-O-W-M-I-A, never forgotten. Is that the phrase that's on there? Right. That really struck me. And I think probably from that, I asked you a few questions and you share with me that, that you did two tours of Vietnam. And as time went on, you told me a little bit more and more. So I have a lot of questions that are kind of based on what we talked about back then. Also just recently, you know, doing a bit of research and kind of getting a better perspective of why the, the U.S. went into the conflict. The questions are about your personal experience regarding PTSD. And I know that you had a difficult childhood. Did your trauma come specifically from the war, or was there kind of like the beginnings of PTSD and trauma from when you were a kid?
1: There was PTSD starting as a kid, uh, being raised in an alcoholic family. Well, I'm I'm not quite sure how to word this. My father uh, drank heavily. I, I can't say anybody is an alcoholic except for me. Uh, but he drank heavily, and, and he had a mean streak when he drank. And uh, some of the things that he did to us today would be considered abuse. Uh, but at that time, it was considered discipline. Uh, whipping with the belt or uh, knocked across the room or uh, talked down too constantly. You know, emotional, emotional stuff. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of, of trauma in childhood. Yeah. And I couldn't wait to get out of the household. I was that type of surrounding.
0: Was that why you, you volunteered to go yes. in, into the, the US Army? You just want to get away from your, your, your dad or
1: Yes. Yeah I wanted to get away from the uh, the environment. Yeah.
0: How old were you at the time? Well I was only
1: seventeen so I couldn't go to Vietnam. Uh my parents uh, signed a slip for me to uh, go into the service for four years and uh, it was to go to four years in Germany. In the in the U.S. Army in the infantry.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: So I uh, I could have spent my full tour in Germany, but there again uh, the cold. <laughs> the reason I moved from Indiana down to here, <laughs> I don't do cold well. So at 17, I went through basic training in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and then I went to a Fort Ord, California. Uh, which is no longer a military installation anymore, but I did my advanced training in California. And then they shipped me off to Germany where I uh, they attached me to an infantry battalion there, and I drove the, uh, a, a communication track vehicle, just 17 years old. They asked me if I could drive it, and I said, well, I was raised on a farm. I can drive about anything. So uh, they set me in there and showed me a few things and turned me loose. And so there, for one of the first times in history, I was a danger to society,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, with a 16-ton track vehicle. Oh, my. And and uh, most of the time, drunk. So that's not a very good scenario, obviously. Is that where the drinking started? No, my drinking started as a child. I was about 12 years old. Uh I hated my father's drinking and I swore swore to God I, I wouldn't end up like him and I ended up being worse than him. Uh, I, at one point, as a child, I, I was upstairs in my bedroom and I came down and my dad had left a drink, a mixed drink in the refrigerator overnight. And I took accidentally took a drink of that. And if I can't explain what happened, um, it tasted terrible. It was whiskey and, and Coke. But, as it was going down, uh, this thing happened to me. Uh, I didn't realize I, I have alcoholic tendencies and that alcoholism runs in the family. But I felt this glow about myself. And all of a sudden, everything was all right. And as I progressed through that, I found out that if I had that at my disposal, any type of alcohol, I could deal with... How my dad treated me. It was okay as long as I was under the influence. But when I wasn't under the influence, then it was pure chaos. In my mind. In my mind. So yeah, that's pretty much how my, my drinking started. I did I don't believe I crossed the line between social drinking and alcoholism until I was maybe, well, probably over in Germany at seventeen years old. I would go down to the uh, PX or downtown and and go bar hopping, and and I didn't know I don't know how to to drink one drink. One drink uh, is not even in the picture. If one drink will do this, what will two or three do? And if three does this, what will four or five do? And so uh, the uh, craving kicked in after one drink. I crave more and more and more. There was never enough. Never enough.
0: You mentioned. It's never enough. A phrase that I heard when I was in rehab is that we are addicted to more as I'm saying we, as in you and I are, are recovering alcoholics that we're addicted to more, but that, um, one is too many in a thousand. Never, ever enough. Never enough. Right. <laughs> yep. So you agree with that too, eh? That's great alcoholic thinking here, right? <laughs> I just qualified. <laughs> uh, so uh, what I understand, then, your drinking started when you are at home. Tell us more about what life was like in the 50s uh, growing up in, in Indiana.
1: Well, I was very naive. I was a very naive person. I was raised in a family. We had eight children. The oldest was a girl and, and seven boys. I was the third oldest. I never felt like I was part of the family unit. I just never felt that. I always felt like the outcast or what they term today is the black sheep of the family. And I don't know that to be true today, but that, that was my feeling at the time. My brothers, my father, all my brothers were in sports, uh, mainly baseball. My dad was a, a little league coach. I didn't like sports. I loved music. I loved nature. And therefore, I didn't live up to my dad's expectations. I I played trombone in the band for four years. My bigger brother and my other brothers all played football and baseball, so they were macho. I was accused of being gay because I didn't like football, you know? (laughs) That'll show you that you're gay.
0: (laughs) How did they jump to that? I know it was the 50s, but how did they jump to that conclusion?
1: Well, I'm not real sure. I remember going, I I, I wanted to please my dad, so I went out for uh, football tryouts when i was a freshman in high school and what happened on the on the tryout field my older brother and a friend of his got together and decided to uh, kind of lay me out flat kind of one of them hit me in the front right under the neck and the other one behind my knees and i did a double back flip and they kind of had to carry me off the field and i said well that's enough of that so uh, my i and I had to get back at my brother, and I said, well, you know why I don't like football? And he says, why? I said, because in the band, we got prettier uniforms than you do. <laughs> you <know? laughs> uh, but, yeah, that's kind of how it was back then. We lived out in the country for five years. We we lived on a 40-acre farm that we rented for five years. And I loved it. I loved the farm. I loved the animals. Uh, I liked to go walking out in the woods. and you know, looking for snakes and bugs or whatever. And I was in, off in my own world, and I, and I didn't have to deal with what was going on with the family. I was out on my own. And I've always thought to myself, and, and I've voiced it to my wife and other people, that I think I would have been a darn good hermit. Because <laughs> I'm not a real people person, you know. <laughs> I would have made a great hermit. But it just God had different plans.
0: I was interested in what life was like for you in the 50s because I mean we we briefly talked about you know how you went to the US army and the the time contact so I just want I just wanted to kind of move back to the 1950s because I want the audience to really understand from your standpoint how young you were at the time your experiences in the 50s and then once you got into the 60s your perception about the U.S. Army, your perception about uh, the Vietnam conflict. But if we are starting in the 50s, I'd love for you to tell... I've heard the story before, but I want you to tell it again for the audience. In 1956, you were on the Steve Allen show. Not actually on the show. They ta- they taped a segment but that right. was played on the show, but you weren't
1: right. technically on the show. Yes, the actor, uh, Steve Allen, uh, came to our town because... Uh, they learned that James Dean was born and raised in our town, the, the actress that did Rebel Without a Cause, obviously, and Giant. And so Steve Allen came to interview his grandparents, who lived only two blocks from us down the street. And in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, one of the things the kids did as they all got together uh, would build little go-karts. And they were kind of flimsy, you know, they, and they had no brakes. <laughs> they had a steering wheel and some wheels and we would use a broom handle to push other kids in the go-kart. And Steve Allen came out from the interview with uh, James Dean's grandparents and decided that he wanted to ride in one of our go-karts. And so we shoved him in one of them and we were pushing him down the street. And unbeknownst to us, the camera crew w- was filming it and, uh, they put us on TV the following week on the Steve Allen show. Yeah, little hit kids from Indiana.
0: <laughs> yeah, you must have been uh, famous among your your friends if they if they caught that uh, that live uh, that live show.
1: I don't know about famous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Another experience
1: I had uh, very early on in life. Uh, I think I was. I don't recall. I remember my mom telling me I was two or three years old and I was out in the yard playing. And uh, Jimmy Dean came by on his motorcycle.
0: James Dean just drove past your house. Right. (laughs) And and he stopped
1: and asked me if I wanted to ride. And I said, well, yeah. So he put me up on his motorcycle and took off. And my mom saw him taking off with me. In those days, the bikers had a bad name, they were they were not good people to be associated with right, and so she was afraid that I was being kidnapped by James Dean. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> yeah, but he just went around the block and came back and let me off. like I say, I don't recall any of it, but I remember her telling me the story. I thought it was pretty hilarious.
0: <laughs> that is amazing, that is yeah. amazing. Not many people would have that experience back then, but you mentioned he grew up in in town there, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I went to the same high school he went to.
0: Tell me a bit about yourself and like what happened between your relationship with your family and to a point where you just wanted to get out of the family, as you mentioned, you wanted to get away and what brought you to the point where, Oh, I can join the army.
1: There was an incident where some friends came by from high school in a car and uh, wanted me to go for a ride with him, And so I jumped in the car with him, and they were all smoking cigarettes, and we were driving around town, and of course, smoke-filled car. I got bloodshot eyes and everything, and they dropped me off home, and there sat my dad in, in a drunken stupor and was yelling at me and, one, and said, you've been out smoking marijuana, haven't you? And I said, no, uh, I was just riding with some friends. They were smoking cigarettes. No, he said, you were smoking marijuana. Go get in the car. Well, I knew what that meant. I went and got in the car, and he took me out into the country to, to beat me up. When he stopped the car, he reached over for me, and I jumped out of the passenger side of the car and began running through the cornfield. And it, it had just rained, and it was muddy and slippery and cold. And I was falling down, and he was yelling at me to come back and swearing he wasn't going to hurt me. I'm not going to hurt you. Come back. So I ran to a friend of mine's home, and we called a state policeman that lives in our town and explained to him what had happened. And he said, you have three choices. He gave me three choices at that time. He said, you can go back and live with your parents and graduate from high school and go and get a job and move out. Well, I had two more years, and I didn't want to live in this environment for two more years. He said, or you can file charges against your dad. For child abuse, and we live in a small town. My dad had a good reputation. He worked with the public. Everybody knew him. They thought he was a great guy. You know, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. So here was this great guy, and how could I? How dare I bring charges against him? See, my third option was. He said, "You're about ready to turn 17." He said, "When you when you turn 17, your parents can sign for you to go into service," and the whole. Idea of that just lit me up. I said, "Oh boy, I get to go in the army. I can be an army of one, you know, be the hero, be whatever. I can be whatever I want, and I won't be in a home environment anymore." And so came the time for me to go into service. uh I went to the uh, the fellow in the, in the town next to ours, the recruiting officer, and he had the pay sent me home with the papers to be signed by my parents, and their signature went on there like magic. So, yeah, and, and that's how it all happened. And and, and I went into basic training, and, and everything fell into place after that.
0: What was your perspective about war at that point? I mean, you're 17, or you were just going to turn 17. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So you're just about to to, to uh, reach 17. What was your understanding about being a soldier, understanding about war? Did you really kind of think about what you are getting into? Because at the time— you were going into training and the expectation was, is that you weren't going to go into war.
1: Right. I thought I was going to spend four years in Germany. Right. That's what I signed uh, the contract for. As I chatted with you last week, uh, I was raised during the cold war, uh, right after world war two. And there was this huge fear of a nuclear attack on the United States, you know, from Russia or China or whoever. And, uh, the town I was raised in is a very patriotic town. You were to go do your patriotic duty. So when I when I learned there was a war in Vietnam, I wanted to go to Vietnam. I, I signed the papers to go to Germany because obviously at 17, I couldn't go to Vietnam. So I, I spent a year in Germany. And uh, after that year, I, I had to reenlist for another year in the service in order to be able to go to Vietnam. I see. So when I turned 18, I signed the papers to to go over. I I went on a volunteer basis because we were told that the communists, the North Vietnamese, were going to overtake South Vietnam, and it was our duty, patriotic duty, to help save South Vietnam. That's all I knew about the war. I didn't know the political implications or anything like that, Greg. Uh, All I knew is I had to go help free these people. That's that's what it was about, and that's not what it was about,
0: obviously. The reality set in later, and you you understood the reality of that conflict much right. later on.
1: My first year really wasn't wasn't bad. Maybe get a little sniper fire when we were on patrol or, or uh, on a convoy going to get supplies or something. You know, we weren't out in the middle of the jungle. We were on top of a mountain and uh, doing a perimeter, a guarding perimeter. So it wasn't bad. And at the end of that first year, they said, would you like to come back? Because I was getting uh, hazardous duty pay, and I was getting overseas pay, and I was, you know, it was looking pretty good. Uh, I didn't learn until later what the real reason was for my wanting to go back, but uh, we'll get into that later. <laughs> uh, so I signed the papers for another six months, they sent me home on a 30-day leave. I went home, and stayed drunk for 30 days. Uh, one of the conditions was my signing and papers would they send me back to the same place that I was for the year because there was very little action there, and they did that for one month. Then they sent me further up north.
0: I think you told me you were in Delat. First? De
1: yeah, it was kind of like an R&R site. There were, you know, rest and recreation. There wasn't much going on in La. Yeah, I spent a year there.
0: So it was kind of like uh, not quite north uh, Vietnam. It's somewhere in the middle.
1: In the middle, exactly, yes. Then they sent me further up north to Quy Nhon In the central highlands. It was right on the coast of South China Sea. And a little thing called Tet Offensive in 1968 broke out just as I arrived.
0: Just as you arrived. So you arrived when? The month before or?
1: Uh, About February, I think, in 1968. January, February, somewhere. It's been 55 years. Somewhere around there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're asking a lot of me here, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No problem. What was life like before this happened? What was your duty? What kind of work were you doing?
1: Uh, I did the same duty uh, for the full 18 months that I served in Vietnam, which was a, a perimeter guard, background was in infantry. But I was attached to a signal battalion, uh, which means uh, they had a uh, I don't know what big screens, where they would get radio and TV signals from Saigon, and they would gather these signals and then send them on, on up further north so the GIs could listen to radio, Hanoi Hannah and... Uh, Maybe if if they're in the right environment they could watch TV or something, you know. And our job, uh we were dug in around the perimeter, uh was to guard this equipment. I see. And also uh sometimes during the daytime, uh we would go out on uh, recon patrols and stuff out in the jungle, you know. But not too often. So that that, that was basically it until a tech broke out and then it, Everything changed, obviously. Everything changed.
0: And for those that may not know the Tet Offensive, how would you describe what happened that uh, that time in the war? All hell broke loose. All hell broke loose. Yeah. It was the understanding that there was an acceptance of, not necessarily ceasefire, but the expectation was that there wasn't going to be any conflict during the Tet holiday.
1: Right, right. And that's that's when they chose to uh, come down and take over South Vietnam. They came down. There was a highway called Highway One that, where they came out of North Vietnam. Uh, it wasn't so much the Viet Cong that we were fighting at that time. There was a new regiment. They were called the North Vietnamese Army, the NBA. They, they were a different they were a different fighting force, and and they were armed uh, to the teeth. The Viet Cong uh, mostly fought uh, guerrilla warfare, and they they had tunnels. They had a whole tunnel system and everything, and and. Uh, you could be walking right next, downtown right next to a Viet Cong and not know it. But the NBA was different. Uh, they, they were highly trained and they were armed to the teeth by, I, I believe, by China, Red China. And uh, so when they came down, uh, they were coming down Highway 1 and they were branching out on each side to the highway. And we were, oh, I'm not real sure, maybe 20 or 30 miles off of Highway 1. And they came, they hit our installation at 2.30 in the morning. They were in behind our perimeter before we even knew they were even there. And the first night, we lost 13 people the first night. And after that, I lost count. I don't know, you know, the war went on and on and on. It seemed like forever after that. you know, Like I said, nothing. nothing was ever the same again.
0: Were you close to these guys that died at that point? Did you have a connection? Did you have a a sense of, like they had in the Second World War, where you are part of a battalion? Uh, My understanding is that you went in and all you guys were individual. You weren't kind of part of a group. In the beginning,
1: that started out like that, like they did in the first two World Wars. They would go over with their unit, with a battalion or a company or whatever, uh, but as the war progressed in Vietnam, they would train them. They had a training station in, in Hawaii, which I never, never saw, but I heard about it. So I was just trained in basic training and advanced training before I went to Germany. So I had no idea about what warfare actually was about, you know. Uh, we tried not to make friends per se because there's always a chance that if you get close to somebody, you're going to lose them, was, was the thought. Uh, when we were in a fire, I remember one time we were in a firefight in, in the jungle right after they overtook our site and one of our men got hit and we walked on by him. And the thing to say during that was, and excuse my language, it don't mean shit because if you stop to help him, your chances of getting blown away are pretty good. So you had to keep moving. And the medics that had to try to stop and save that guy's life hated that term. And I don't blame them. They hated that term. But it was a mind thing. Here's your mind body coming out, Greg. Mm, Yes. The mind thing, the mind says, do not stop. Act like it's not even happening. Act like you're not afraid. If you're not afraid, you're a fool. So the body motivates you to move on. And it's hard to explain it to, to to people that have never experienced it. Uh, the first person I killed, I can't explain. I just, I can't. Uh, there are no words for
0: it. How did you see the enemy?
1: Bad. Uh. Obviously, they were brought up in their own way of thinking. You know, communist. Uh, we were democratic. We had different ways of thinking. But I was taught that communism was bad. As a child, I was taught the word communism was a bad word. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we perceive the enemy as just being the most god-awful thing you ever saw. And that would justify killing him. If you kill him, he can't spread communism.
0: And that's what you're there for. Kill or be killed. Yeah, absolutely. So the kill or be killed, is that instilled in, in basic training or... Like, how, how do they get a soldier to the point where they're willing to kill another human being?
1: Well, I don't know that as a 17-year-old they had to do much because I was 10-foot-tall and bulletproof. You know how 17-year-olds are.
0: Oh, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: they got this testosterone running through them, and then, uh, they're big and bad, and you can't hurt them. Uh, I never once, uh, even during the war, thought, well, I can't say that I didn't think I was going to die, but uh, I wasn't really afraid of dying. And and that brings me back to the point of of, uh, during my first firefight, or or when I said that I signed to go back, I found out later on during uh, therapy that it was a suicide attempt. I didn't want to come back to the United States. I didn't want to come back to my family. I didn't want anything to do with that, so I volunteered to go back to Vietnam subconsciously in the hope that I wouldn't go home. I didn't know that at the time. Here again, I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing.
0: So in in addition to being 10 feet tall, bulletproof, you really weren't too concerned about the outcome. Didn't care. Didn't care. Didn't care, yeah. So I understand... The installations you are at, the communication facility, they came in around 2.30 uh, in the morning. Tell us more about that experience. And as much as you are comfortable in sharing, I don't want this to be triggering for your PDSD, but I think it's important for people to understand the experience of a Vietnam soldier and what was actually happening at, during the Taut Offensive from someone's point of view.
1: Well, if you recall, I, I said earlier on that we tried not to make friends. But in the same sense, you needed somebody to back you up, so to speak. And uh, there was one uh, gentleman, he was a a colored guy from uh, California. He had a wife and three kids. His name was Terry Bradshaw. Uh, Actually allowed me to back him up because uh, at that time, there was a lot of marijuana smoking going on, a lot of drinking going on. So you had to watch who, who, who had your back. And I thought it was an honor that Terry allowed me to do that. It was like I was, uh, now I'm a part of instead of a part from, okay? <clears throat> the night that we were overran, I was uh, in the bunkers that we had dug into and sandbagged them. We had two uh, guards to guard the perimeter in each bunker. And we had, obviously, we had radio contact with everybody. And uh, I heard a lot of screaming and yelling over the radio because uh, people were getting killed. So, so obviously that kind of went along with it. And then I heard Terry got killed. He was on our front gate, front perimeter. Uh, his post was different than the ones that we dug in. His his was three cement walls about three or four feet high and he had machine guns on on the front and sandbagged in and they dropped a satchel charge. It was a homemade uh, explosive on him and blew the whole right side off of him. Uh, Anger set in. I was sitting in my bunker with this other guy and we had a footlocker full of ammunition and hand grenades and uh, 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 night flares that we could send up into the air, and I grabbed the bunker, and I pulled it outside next to a big rock. We were behind us. And my favorite weapon was uh, an M79 grenade launcher. It was it was like a, a breech load shotgun. It had a big shell on it, and it was recoilless, and we had a sniper in a tree that was holding us down outside the bunker. So I started shooting rounds off at him. And my friend was uh, popping hand flares up in the air so I could see. And each round got closer and closer and closer to the tree that he was in. And eventually, the tree and him were gone. There was my revenge for Terry. Sad but true, you know. And we, like I say, we lost a few other people that night, you know. But it's just something. Uh, well, I don't know how to say it. It's just something. It's a hard truth that you swallow. You know, I had uh, survivor's guilt. I was from a family of eight. Terry had a wife and three kids. I said, God, why not take me? Nobody missed me. Nobody missed me. I'm, I'm just one kid out of eight. You know, Terry had kids and a wife. Didn't seem right. At that time, I I didn't believe in God. You know, when, when, uh, when they overran us, I remember looking up in the sky and I didn't say, oh, God, please help me. I looked up and I said, well, I guess this is it. I just figured this is the night that I'm going to die. And uh, you kind of surrender yourself to that fact. Of course, you fight to the end. But you surrender yourself to that, you know, probably not going to get out of this alive.
0: Well, here I am. <laughs> you got out of alive. I did. I you got, got out, out alive. And
1: many, many other nights after that, too.
0: Yeah. Looking back, what do you think kept you alive and uh, kept you from not being a fatality of the war? Luck. Yeah? Luck. Yeah.
1: Who's to say? Being at the right place at the right time? Uh when they drop mortars in on you, you could run from one spot to another and the mortar land over there and you're dead. I mean you know what are the chances? You either are or you aren't. You either go here or you don't go there. And you know, it's kind of like flipping a coin.
0: There is a plane a plane uh, flying overhead right now. Is there? <laughs> yeah, so we'll just wait for a second, but I'll uh, I'll I'll backtrack to, to I was my... gonna tell you get
1: under the desk, Greg. <laughs> That's my old thinking.
0: <laughs> so I'll go back to asking about that. You know, you survived and you got out alive. What do you feel kept you alive during that time and not, uh, not being a fatality of the war?
1: Well, like I say, it, mainly it was luck. But I, I'm sure it had something to do with my training, you know. Most of the time we were able to fight off the enemy. I failed to mention uh, the first night of the Tet Offensive, uh, they had some Air Force uh, fighter jets uh, coming from Saigon, going up north. On the way up, uh, they strafed our site for us. They started at the bottom of the mountain and strafed up to where we were in the guard uh, in the guard bunkers and then moved on up further north. So I'm sure that helped save quite a few of us that night especially, you know. But other than that, yeah, I I, I think pure luck and, and and some somewhat training. Of course, we didn't have the training the NRA had or the MBA had, you know, uh, and and they knew the country better than we
0: did. And that's that's the thing, right? You guys were put yeah. into a situation where you didn't know the terrain, you didn't know the right. politics, you didn't know what was happening between the NVA and the Viet Cong. and the Vietnamese people that there was, there's a conflict there among the country. Mm -hmm. They're fighting each other. And the U S went in there with the thought of fighting communism, but they realized that there's just way too much going on in that country. And for many years, it even goes back to uh, when the French were there.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. You bet. French pulled out. They were losing too many. Yeah. Just like, just like we did. But I don't know in our case that it was because we were losing too many, but it was a political war, and the politics failed. Pretty obvious.
0: When did that dawn on you guys when you were there? The political aspect? Realizing, what are we here for? This is bullshit. It didn't.
1: It it dawned on me way back after I got back, 20-some years after I got back, when I got sober, it dawned on me. I used the uh, drugs and the alcohol as a kind of uh, catalyst uh, into a non-reality, I guess you would say. Uh, acting like it's not there, acting like it didn't happen. Shove it down. Uh, don't let anybody see you sweat, you know, uh, type of thing, you know.
0: Man up. Man up. I imagine that's kind of the things that your dad told you back then, too.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's a childhood thing, yeah.
0: Yeah. You did two tours of Vietnam. Can you share how and why you would go back and do a second tour?
1: You know, it's funny you used to ask that. Uh, Today, I'm not sure I would. I used to say I would, if the United States called me to go to war, I would be right there because that would be my patriotic duty, obviously. But now today, I think the only way that I would probably fight again, and obviously I'm not going to because I'm too old, but if I were to, it would only be if they stepped foot on our soil and I had to protect our soil. I would definitely be there in a heartbeat to protect our way of life and our freedoms. But, uh, no, I don't think I would go overseas again. No, When I got back, I said I would, but not today. Things change.
0: So you went back. For the second time and not knowing what was going to happen in the country. Right, the, I yeah.
1: thought I was going to go back to the lot, which I did for a month. And then they sent me further north and then Tet broke out and then back to the States. Oh boy.
0: What was your experience with that? I think historically <laughs> we know what was said and what was done when you guys came back, but yeah. what, was, what was your personal experience coming back from the war? And the, I mean, the, the conflict that was going on in the U.S. at the time and, and the perspective about uh, uh, my lie and all that.
1: Yeah, we were told on the, on the plane on the way back if we had civilian clothes to put them on because they were striking out at people in uniform. I remember during World War II, after World War II, you could walk in a bar with a uniform on and get a drink bought. You walk in a bar after Vietnam with a uniform on and you're spit on. You know, That's just the, just the way things changed. We landed in LAX, Los Angeles, uh, during and then I were riot, and they were they were burning the flags and burning the draft cards and screaming at us and calling us baby killers and spitting at us, and, 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 the, and the whole the whole gambit. Uh, finally, made it uh, out of LAX and headed home to where there was no homecoming. Uh, nobody asked me how I was doing. No, no family members. Not mom. Not dad. Not brothers. Not sisters. We just. Something we don't talk about, and I felt bad about that. And there I was, the outcast again, just like I felt like I was as a child. Nothing changed, and the drinking and the drugging took over. That's what I used to uh, numb out, so to speak, shove it down inside, act like it didn't happen.
0: And you learn how to do that when you're younger. Oh, and then yeah. when you're when you're in Vietnam during the war. Did it escalate there as well, or did it escalate when you came home and you had experience all this? Oh, it escalated in the war too, Greg.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you see things. You see atrocious things that you don't... I won't even talk about today. You see you see things that you even begin to wonder if it was reality, if you really did see it, if you really did experience it, you know. Uh, your, the mind is saying, this can't be it. This, you know... There's something wrong with this picture. And my contention has always been just this. Nobody wins in a war. Nobody wins a war. You just don't. You know, you lose a, You lose one life, you lose. That's just my perception of it. I, I don't believe anybody wins in a war. Uh, I did what I had to do, what I felt I had to do at the time. And I paid for it for many, many, many years. Many years with the PTSD. And, uh, if anybody from... Iraq or Iran or some of those kids are listening today. Get help, you know. Get therapy. Don't don't worry about what the family says. Do what you need to do for you, because this thing doesn't go away. It it just doesn't, and it's going to be with me for a lifetime. But I can deal with it today better than you know I could have as a drunk or a druggie. And so yeah, I I get along most days okay.
0: So that it escalated during the war, it got. Your alcohol and drug use increased when you came back. I know that you met Louise, who I, I know very well, your your wife of many years. Uh, what was your life like before meeting Louise? Was it just constant alcohol and drugs to medicate and numb out?
1: Yes. Yeah. When I was in Vietnam, my, my use, my drug and alcohol use escalated. And when I got back to the United States, it pretty much doubled or tripled in escalation. I began bar hopping, going to bars. I would look for drugs wherever I could find them. I didn't have a drug of choice at the time. I met Louise down in Pueblo, Colorado, and she lived with me for 20 years as a practicing alcoholic, and I don't wish that on anybody. I wasn't there for my kids. My kids couldn't bring friends home. They never knew what shape Dad's going to be in. How's Dad going to come home tonight? Is he going to be happy-go-lucky or is he going to be mean? Or is he going to yell at us or is he going to spank us or is he going to hug us or is he going to tell us he loves us? And they never knew what school they were going to go to because as a drunk, I couldn't keep a job. I couldn't keep a home, couldn't keep a car. Kids would make friends at a school and we'd move because I couldn't pay rent where I was living. It was just, just a mess. It was a mess. And I don't blame all that on Vietnam. No? A lot of it I do. But, but not at all, but yeah, you know, some of it childhood issues and stuff, and my not wanting to change, fear, fear of
0: change. You must have had a lot of anger uh, when you came back and <laughs> you're stuffing it with alcohol and drugs. Like, where, where did that anger go?
1: I have to attribute that to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was still angry uh, when I came in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. A gentleman. In Colorado he approached me after a meeting one day and he put his hand on my shoulder and he looked me dead in the eye and he said, Steve, you have other problems other than alcoholism. I said, yeah, what's that? He said, I think you have PTSD. And the snide me being who I am, I said, oh, it's not enough. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Now i got to have this. Now you want me to go see a damn psychiatrist, you know, <laughs> and the anger was coming up. Like you mentioned the anger. My anger was instantaneous. I was angry at the world. Anger was a monster that lived inside of me. Uh, and it would come out in a heartbeat. Say the wrong thing, even look at me wrong. The anger was there. The anger and the hate and the rage were eating me alive deep down inside. And I had, if I can tell a short story about what Louise did, <laughs> I won't blame this on her. She would had enough living with me as a drunk. I could—I wasn't working half the time. She was working, trying to keep a household together and everything. And one day she came to me and says, Honey, you're not working now. It would be a good time probably for you to go back to Indiana and visit with your mom and dad. And my eyes lit up. I said, Boy, that's a good idea. Well, she bought me a one-way bus ticket back to Indiana.
0: <laughs> one-way ticket. <laughs> yes, sir. That's a hint.
1: Yeah, and she gave me uh, two tuna sandwiches, and I think it was $1.75 in my pocket, put me on the bus, and I turned around to wave goodbye, and she wasn't there. She had had enough of me. She walked away. I spent 45 days in Indiana, drunk and stoned, and my parents, home. Well, my parents, my dad, had quit drinking, got into the church and quit drinking.
0: Oh, wow. So when you came back at that time, then your dad was... Silver sober was he was he a different person he was a different person
1: i didn't get to know him very well before he died but he was absolutely a different person a better person yeah and so after 45 days he came to me he had had enough of my act he bought me a one-way bus ticket <laughs> back to colorado <laughs> but he was really kind he gave me a hundred dollar bill to go on that trip <laughs> By the time I hit from Indiana to East Saint Louis, I was broke. I had spent my money on booze and drugs.
0: No and I was
1: broke when we pulled into the I was in a blackout when we pulled into the town of Pueblo and I went in search of my wife and kids. I didn't know where they lived. I had no idea. I called a few of her relatives and found out where they lived. Now uh my kids differ from me on this story, but I, I can only tell you what I recall to be truth. Mhm. I found them in their apartment. They were My wife and three kids were all there. My wife and two of the kids decided to go to a thing called Now Anon Meeting, which is for family and friends of alcoholics, because it's a family disease. They went to a meeting, and one of the other daughters locked herself in the bedroom. Now, she swears she didn't, but I swear she did. So, But I'm sitting there in the living room, and here's the sad part. This is where alcoholism and drug addiction take you. I was scanning the room. I was casing the room. I was looking for something to steal from my daughters that I could take and hawk and go get me some drugs and some booze because I was broke, and I needed my fix, so to speak. And I'm looking around this room, seeing what I can take from my own daughters. Now, if that's not the bottom of the pit, I don't know what is. But anyway, I call this a God shop. I looked down at the coffee table, and there was a pamphlet on there that we know so much about in AA. And I picked that pamphlet up, and I read a paragraph, and I threw it down. And I said, man, in my mind, I said, what a bunch of crap that is. <laughs> a little while later, I picked the pamphlet up again. It was an Al-Anon pamphlet. It wasn't even an AA pamphlet. And I read the whole thing, and I picked the telephone up, and I called the local AA club. And I said, do you have any AA meetings there tonight? And there's a little old lady. She says, yes, honey, we do. I'd like to already. She called me honey. She says, yes, honey, we do. We have one here at 8 o'clock. And you're welcome to come down. And I said, well, you need to know, I'm not an alcoholic. I just want to come see what it's about. And <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I want to do. And so there began my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went down to that, that meeting. When it ended, there was an old man there named Fritz. He stood up and gave me a hug, and I was the most unhuggable thing in the world. I, I bet, bet my money on that. And what he told me, sent a chill down my back. He said, Steve Cox, no matter what you do, you keep coming back. And I went home to Louise that night, my first night in AA, and she said, well, what did you think of the meeting? I said, I asked for kindergartners. You know, it's nothing. She said, are you going back? I said, yeah, I'm going back. Well, why are you going back if you didn't like it? I said, well, there was this old man down there, and he told me to come back, and I need to go see what he wants. (laughs) So I went back the next night, and they passed the basket around for a collection, and I said, oh, I know what they want. They want my money. But I fooled them. I didn't have any money. (laughs) So that was
0: my introduction into AA. What amazing perception. The one person had that said to you, you're an alcoholic, but also you have PTSD. What happened after that? Did you find out more about PTSD? Did you go right into therapy at that time?
1: Well, I didn't go right into therapy, but I was kind of checking it out. I was on the outskirts of checking it. I didn't want to implicate myself, so to speak, I guess, or or to where I would be tangled if I didn't like it, that I'd still have to go to therapy. I ended up with a therapist that was recommended to me through the VA, Veterans Association. Around what time was this? Was this in the 70s? This was or? in uh, about 1979. And this lady worked for the government as a therapist, and her name was Sadie. And uh, I would go to see her once a week, every Monday, called it my blue Mondays, I've got to go see Sadie. But she was a very nice person, but she wouldn't take any bull. I mean, you know, you couldn't lie to her. Well, I could, but I wouldn't get by with it. She pretty much knew. And she was very, very instrumental in uh, in my getting through some of my anger issues, my rage, and, and, and that type of stuff, you know. I was having nightmares. Uh, I'd wake up hitting Louise and stuff and screaming and yelling and, you know, that type of stuff. I have agoraphobia. I don't do well in crowds. For years and years and years, I had to have my back to the door. You know, it's just like living it all over again. And you got to get through that stuff. And the only way I knew to get through it was to finally get honest with somebody. I learned the honesty in AA, honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I had to become willing to to get better. And I, I would do myself not one bit of good walking in her office and laying down a bunch of lies and trying to impress her about who Steve Cox was and what he was about. I had to be absolutely open with her, and believe me, there were some tear jerk
0: concessions there really
1: was, and I had to put aside the fear of what the family would think about me seeing a therapist.
0: Why would you be concerned about that
1: my my family uh, I was told as a young kid that you you don't you don't go to a psychiatrist or a therapist because you would be labeled as a as a nut job
0: oh yeah okay
1: or insane, you know and uh, the small t- the small town that we were from uh would look down on the family you know what what's, what was it like you said earlier, what are the neighbors going to think <laughs> yeah you know if 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 they if they see you going to a psychiatrist, you know they're going to think we got a bunch of insane people in our family, and so yeah uh I had to learn to to set that aside and get me well and not worry about what other people thought work on me because i I'm still working on me today still have to on a daily basis
0: you were able to get clean and sober so you had um, a clear mind going in, into therapy you got to get past the whole thing that your your family you know, were labeling you as a crazy person but you you got the help and I think a lot of people need to know especially um, the veterans need to know is that it's difficult to get past all of that how did you get past not only how your family felt about it, you felt about it, but also what was instilled in you when you are in the army, because there's a long history about you don't have this reaction to war. And if you do, you keep it to yourself. You don't talk about it. Right. You learn many years later the reality of PTSD and, and veterans of war. How did you get past all that and get to a point where you met the therapist and you started understanding PTSD and getting help for it?
1: Yeah, uh, it's kind of weird the way it happened. She sent me to a, a VA hospital for uh, guys with PTSD, out in the uh, plains of Colorado, way out in the middle of nowhere. And it happened to be a lockup ward. And I was like, boy, I've arrived now, you know. <laughs> I was a chain smoker at the time, and they would give you one cigarette every two hours. And they wouldn't let you light it. They'd light it for you because you were a nut. I left after a week against medical advice and hitchhiked back home. And I told Louise, I said, I'm never going back again. I'm not going to therapy anymore. This is just just what it took. She eventually talked me into going back. She said, go see Sadie one more time and see what she can do. So I said, okay. I went in. And believe me, all this was a struggle. I went to see Sadie again. And she said, I have another program, and I'm going, "Uh uh-oh, another psych ward, you know. (laughs) This one's up in Denver, and it's a six-month program, but you can come home on weekends, and you stay in the facility. You go to, they're kind of like classes that you go through, and you learn about your problems. You learn about PTSD. You learn about triggers. You learn how to get through certain things in life, and they give you a certificate if you pass the course. One of the guys... uh, Ticked me off one day, and I went home, told Louise, I'm never going back there. I get ticked off easy. You know, I'm not, you can't make me go back. You know, I'm like a little three-year-old when I get mad. She let it go for the weekend, and then she talked me into going back, and I did that. And when I got out, when I graduated, so to speak, got my certificate, I was told to go put put in for, a, well, what do you call it,
0: disability. Oh, disability through the VA? Yes, through the VA. And this was uh, in around 79, 80, so that was a reality. But prior to that, yeah. but even now, working with vets, you know they're hesitant to to get disability for PTSD because you'd have to kind of accept that you have PTSD.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I it, it took me a while before I finally went to to try to. And what got me is is when I first put in for it, they only gave me fifteen percent disability. Why? Because they figured that's the only, uh, that's, I didn't have very bad PTSD or something. I don't know. Went, sheesh. But that's what they gave me. And uh, I had that 15% when the still had to work. And then uh, somebody told me, one of, the, one of the vets told me, he said, go join the, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the organization now, but they had an organization uh, that I joined and they would represent you in, in they would help you with a lawyer and everything. So I went and put put in for an uh, upgrade on them. Well, they upgraded me to 50%, which wasn't bad, but I felt like I deserved at least 100%. You know, So I went to put in again, and they told me, they said, you know, if you put in for an advance in, on this again, they can drop you back down to 15. They don't have to give you 100%. You, they can drop you back down. And I said, well, I'll take my chances. And I went in, and they gave me the hundred percent, but under the condition that I go back every three years for reevaluation. And if I fail the reevaluation, everything's taken away, so I lose all my benefits. I lose my medical, I, I lose my uh, my VA pay, I lose everything. I put in uh, for a thing that they called uh, total and permanent, and I got that. And after ten years of having that, when I pass away, if Louise is still alive. She receives my benefits. She'll receive my VA pay and all my medical benefits and everything goes with it. So that was a positive. So if I can tell a veteran today, absolutely put in for it. And don't stop. If, if you know if you feel like you're not winning the battle, go back and fight some more. Because the VA is not going to give it to you just right away. They just don't, it's just not something they do. It's kind of like Social Security, I guess. Yeah, keep trying, keep trying. And don't feel ashamed for doing it. Look what you went through.
0: The guys I work with, you know, they talked about the shame, but also just fear of being labeled. Like you said, your family were labeling you, but also how did you get past your own personal feelings about being labeled with PTSD, someone that has a a mental health issue?
1: I don't know if you ever really get 100% past it. I only know from my own experience that getting sober was the greatest thing I could have done in my life to get anywhere with my PTSD. Uh, I was able to get honest with myself. I couldn't, at the time, Greg, even look at the mirror and, and begin to like what was looking back at me. I was just so filled with hate and, and rage and anger. It was unbelievable. It was like a monster eating away at me on the inside. And until I gave up the drugs and the booze, I didn't have a chance in the world. I was on a, a downward spiral. It it wasn't until sobriety, and and I'm not trying to push AA off on anybody. uh, If you want it, you can get it. If you don't, you don't have to. That's fine. But I would say if you got a problem, go take care of the problem. And I learned in AA to uh, begin to face myself and face my fears and to get honest with Steve. And it was the toughest thing in the world I ever did getting through all my childhood issues, all the PTSD issues, all the things that happened to me in the war, all the things that happened to me outside of the war in society, and I still don't have much use for society, but that's neither here nor there, you know. (laughs) Get help. I, I can't stress it enough. Get help.
0: A lot of the guys I work with and women in the military have told me a lot of stories about depression. A lot of stories oh, about yeah. thinking, um, I don't think I want to be around anymore. You know, very, very deep holes of depression. They thought of killing themselves. Did that happen to you when during your drinking days? Uh, how did you get past that?
1: It did happen to me along towards the end of my drinking days.
0: The end of your drinking days, before AA.
1: Right. Just along towards the end. I recall leaving a bar one time, and I drove down to a, a lake they had in town there in Pueblo sitting in my car at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I had a three fifty seven Magnum, and I had put it to my head. And I decided uh, I couldn't deal with society anymore, with myself anymore, with uh, my being a failure in life. I had my finger on the trigger, and I remember thinking, if I do this wrong, I'm going to end up a vegetable, and it's going to hurt. Oh, man. <laughs> so... That was my only thought because I was in a drunken stupor. So I put the gun down and I drove around looking to see if I could find some more booze. (laughs) That's just kind of the way it was. Stuff it back down, eh? Stuff it down, act like it's not there. I had this wall built around me, Greg, an invisible wall. Don't dare come past that wall because then you're in dangerous territory. If you get past that wall, I had a mask. And the mask took several different forms it, it could be a mask of kindness. I'd treat you with kindness. it could be a mask of deceit. I would use humor if I can humor you in, in one way or another, then you're not going to i don't know how to put it you're, you're not going to be a, a a force in my life or whatever you know whatever the situation is going on, you're not going to be a threat to me anyway. I was so filled with, 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 with rage, and I think rage came out of fear. Fear of um, people thinking that I, I wasn't macho enough, you know, and I was raised to be be macho and never let them see you sweat, never let them see you cry, you know, and be a man and all this stuff. So in order to do that, I would go into this rage and hopefully in the rage scare them enough to where they wouldn't, they wouldn't be as threat to me anymore. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And and therein was why my kids never knew what kind of shape dad was going to be in. If he was going to be happy, if he was going to be, you know, a mean SOB. They never knew. My wife never knew. My friends never knew. I never knew. till so I got sober.
0: How were you able to drop the masks and lower the wall? What do you attribute that to? Therapy.
1: Therapy, therapy, therapy. And, and, and I can't stress it enough. I love your, your podcast name, Mind-Body Next, you know. I, I just, as soon as I saw that, I said, boy, people just don't realize the correlation. You know, you ask me how I get past it. I don't know that I get past it so much as I learn how to deal with it.
0: What affects the mind affects the body, and what affects the body affects the mind, yeah.
1: There you go, yeah. And that's why I love your podcast so much, and, and uh yeah, it just kind of struck me. Yeah, if people knew the correlation in so many things we do, so many ways that we think and the way our body reacts to it, you know. I can get angry. I've got angry at people. And when I get angry, my adrenaline rush comes in and I start shaking and people look at me and think I'm, I'm afraid. And what they don't realize, there's a bomb about to go off and it's not going to be a pretty picture. And I even tell them, you need to back off, you know, because you're messing with something you don't know about oh, you think you're big and bad. It was the first response. You think you're bad, don't you? And I said, no, I know I am. And I know I'll take your head off. And you mm-hmm. don't want to go there. That was PTSD in a nutshell speaking. That ah. was it. And Louise hated that. And still today I can go on. I have to I have to be very careful. I can get road rage in a heartbeat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so can I. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people have PTSD that aren't military vets, and I think there's a bit of a stigma there. What would you say to a listener that relates to everything that you're saying but uh, was never in the military, but they relate to your experience and how you dealt with PTSD?
1: Forget what other people think of you. Forget it. Think well of yourself, well enough to get help. The stigmas are are going to be there for a lifetime. They're always there. If it's not in one area of your life, it's in another area of your life. Forget it. A friend of mine in AA told me, he said, Steve, he said, it's none of your business what other people think of you. It's your business what you think of you. Do you like what's looking back at you in that mirror? If you don't, change it. And I'm the only one that can change it. My wife can't change it. My kids can't change it. Society can't change it. Just walk on, you know, just on, walk on. Walk on. Hold your head up and walk on.
0: I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's um, some therapies. I think I did give you the episode where we talked about this, that for military veterans, that they are using therapy-guided use of psychedelics. Interested to know your perspective, because I'm sure there was a fair amount of psychedelics used during the war, uh, the Vietnam War, and now we're looking at, psilocybin ma- magic mushrooms for example being used to treat PTSD, and from your perspective what do you think about that
1: i didn't like it being an addict to me it's it spelled trouble i did my share of magic mushrooms and other psychedelics in the 70s and 80s and i believe for me it would be a trigger ah okay for, for me to go go back to where i don't want to go i'm sure uh If somebody can get some use out of it, fine. But uh, for me, uh, it it would just set up a red flag. That's the only thing I can tell you, what what I thought
0: about it. That makes a lot of sense.
1: I could be wrong, you know. Uh, I was wrong once last year. Uh, That was a joke, (laughs) right?
0: Sorry. Uh, Don't ask me. (laughs) This is such a serious conversation. Yeah. I miss, I miss yeah. humor, which I love. Uh,
1: I could be wrong, but I don't believe there's a cure for PTSD. There's help in all areas of, of our life. There's, there's help and, and there's uh, things that you can do personally to get better. But I don't believe in, in my case that it will ever be 100% gone and I'm cured. That's just like there's no cure for alcoholism. I, I, I'm sober on a daily basis there's no cure for it, and I don't believe there's a cure for PTSD. Uh, I'm not saying that to try to to get anybody to feel sorry for me and say, oh, you know, uh, he's just saying that because, you know, he doesn't want to get well or something like that. It's not that at all. You know, I would love to get well, I like nothing better. But uh, there are still things, I'm sure, in the recesses of my mind, childhood issues and whatnot, that uh, will probably be there till the day I die. And I have to learn to
0: deal with that the best I know how. It's your life's work. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Your sobriety and how you cope with PTSD.
1: Yeah.
0: What have you learned over your life and what have you learned from the military?
1: For one, to become educated, don't be so naive, don't believe everything you're told. And what I learned in AA is don't take yourself so damn serious. Uh, My whole life was about serious. The war was serious, my childhood was serious, my drinking, my drugging was all serious, and I need to lighten up on myself. Nobody can do that for me. I have to do that. It's the best I got. Well put. What do you think is most important in life? Being true to yourself, being honest, uh learning to be honest. Give back. I was always a taker. I would take everything. I would take your money I'd take your well-being. I'd take your happiness. I'd take whatever I could in order for me to get what I felt that I needed in my life, which was the next drink and the next drug or the next whatever. As long as it made me feel good, I would do it. And I had to get honest. And once I did that, and once I began to get better through therapy and through AA and through PTSD programs or whatever, then I had to learn to quit taking and begin to give which is why I tell the people, these young kids that are coming back from the war, get help, get help. That, that's the only thing I know that I can give back to you is that advice is to get help. Don't become a suicidal statistic like so many of the, the guys are that are coming back today. Or even from Vietnam or World War II. You know, we had the suicide uh, uh, rates then too that were high.
0: Apparently we lose 22 veterans a day. Oh God, suicide. it's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, and it's sad. It's, it's just sad. Because it doesn't have to be that way. But you have to reach out. The VA or therapist or whatever is not going to come to you. They're not going to come to you. You need to go to them. You need to go to them and you need to open up and you need to be honest. I can't stress that enough. Because if I lie to a therapist, I'm just, I'm wasting your time and mine. I need to lay my guts out, so to speak, on the table and say, here it is, what are we going to do with it? Got to do something with it. Hopefully it's good. Hopefully we can do something good. And I think the best good that we can do is to give it back to people, to people that need, that need the advice, that need to know how to get through this thing called post-traumatic stress disorder, that need to go, know how to get through childhood issues, that need to know how to get through people downgrading you and, and, you know, all of this stuff that we see in society today. We need to begin to take care of ourselves. And I can't do that until I get armed with myself.
0: Thank you for that. And, you know, I don't want to sound cliche, but thank you for your service to tours of Vietnam. I have utmost respect for you sharing your story today, but also, you know, I've known you for a number of years and uh, the impact that you had with me, the things that you're saying today were kind of a condensed conversation that we had for many years that was very, very helpful for me. And I think that, uh, for my own mental health issues, being uh, influenced by your resilience and courage to get help, I got help as well. Thank you. I also I also like to say thank you for being an American dad. I always <laughs> come back to that. You know, I, I've mentioned that before to you, eh? Eh? <laughs> <Hey>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you certainly are my American dad. Uh, those early years of sobriety, it was just a great joy to come down to Indiana and see you. And I I really, really hope I can uh, make it down to see you in Gulf Shores next year because you have a a big anniversary.
1: Yes, sir. Be 55 years.
0: 55 years for you and Louise. Yeah. I hope to arrange that I can make it for that. I certainly would look forward to seeing you and your family. I wish you all the best and and say hello to Louise for me and your great family. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks for having me, Greg. Wow. That's got wow well factor written all over it. That's
0: usually your response to them is, is wow. That's the first thing you say, but this wow is a different wow, because <laughs> wow, I'm sure you were knocked out by his story, right? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it, okay. Wow. In capital letters, W O W. Yes.
2: Yes. Wow. That's, that's all I could say. And didn't I say it when we prefaced the show today, what an amazing storyteller. And I also like the the Southern accent. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: I noticed his accent actually changed uh, since I visited him in uh, Indiana when he moved to Alabama. I hear I hear even more of the uh, the Southern accent. Well,
2: well, you would as you as you go further down south, the accent gets deeper, and uh, so from Indiana down to Alabama yeah you would hear that but uh no an amazing man an amazing story and as you pointed out uh to Steve thank you very much for your service exactly yeah
0: we're gonna talk more about this uh next week in our episode of uh of keep talking yeah I, I mean I, I couldn't have asked for a better guest
2: right well the fact that you know him you you know most of his story but I'm sure I am mm-hmm. sure still after interviewing him today there were some things that you you didn't know, um, which is exactly, which is important. But again, Steve Cox, an amazing individual, by the way, happy anniversary to you and uh, your wife, Steve, uh, coming up uh, next year, isn't it?
0: Uh, next August, August of uh, 2024. So I'm going to try to uh, make it down for, uh, for that event. And, uh, that would be, if you can, that, that would be great. That'd be great.
2: If, if, if they'll let me, if, you could swing if they'll let me across the border, but that's, but that's, very but true. that's another story. That's another story for another episode.
0: <laughs> well, listeners, I hope you're downloading our episodes to start a queue and to get notifications of new ones. If you found this episode interesting and insightful, please give us five stars or a review on the platform that you're using. Mind Body Matters is a grape media podcast, and we will be back next week. Meanwhile, be kind to yourself.
2: And most importantly, folks, be well.
0: Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends.